0: Talk
1: Recorded live. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Women of the Revolution. We made it again for another week, even though it's not the same day. And uh, we will keep you updated on what the you know days change or if we're not going to make it or not because um, Deb, I'm Susan Bonner, and Deb is with me, my co-host. We live extremely interesting lives, we are not in town, Uh, internet goes in and out, our weather is crazy, our lives are crazy, but we will make sure that something is up to let the folks out there know what is going on. This is an educational program based in fact about women of the revolution. Sometimes we find mass amounts of information on them, and sometimes we don't. But either way, we introduce these women to the people of the United States of America and anybody else that's listening around the world. Now,
2: tonight, uh, well, first of all, how are you doing tonight, Deb? I'm doing fine. We uh, We didn't get the bad weather we were supposed to get. It just rained here. I was very happy about that part.
1: Well, yeah, I actually was hurting very bad yesterday. I had my poor pectoral muscle was screaming from about 11 o'clock in the morning. I finally got it under control using ice and medication and resting because I've been going nonstop since Wednesday when we left here on the mountain. And every time I do more and more stuff, it just sets me back. And you and I were talking about this off air, because it reminds me of our poor um, veterans and the guys that are going through rehab, because it, it, it's like I'm going through my own little rehab, and because I tore a ligament, it's worse than breaking a bone. It would have been better off if I had my shoulder in a cast and broke a bone, right?
2: Yep, it would have healed faster.
1: So, I I mean, I'm hurting, but I'm thinking about the our poor our men and women that are going through these physical therapy because of the injuries that I incurred, Even though it is much less than any of the wars that we've had, it's still trying to them, it's frustrating because it's frustrating as hell to me. Mm -hmm. I still can't pick up a bunch of stuff. I still can't do things for myself. I mean, and and then my heart and my mind and my prayers go with them. And so should everybody else's. Okay. So tonight, and at least once a month, we like to do what's called the wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. I put this in our uh, repertoire because I thought to myself, you know, all these women on the loyalist side and on the um, patriot side, they all suffered a lot, but these men weren't in battle, so to say. They were just signing a document. That was it, and by signing this document, they put themselves and their entire family in mortal danger. All you porcelain dolls out there and all you protesters, you have no idea what it would feel like to be in a kitchen with your children knowing that your husband just rode off to put a death sentence on us. You don't have that luxury. And if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't be able to do be doing what you're doing right now and destroying our country, correct? Mm-hmm. I get so infuriated at these people because they are so unappreciative of what we have. And to tell you the truth, Deb, just before we get into this, because this isn't very important, I don't understand how these bureaucrats can and anybody else these proud do this to our to to each other to our own citizens i don't
2: understand the mindset oh, i know i know i'm so disgusted and the more you learn about um you know the the founding of this country and and you know studying the constitution and the bill of rights and all that stuff and read some of the, the uh wonderful speeches given by the men who stood up and, while speechifying, you know, put the noose around their necks. Um, Some of these speeches are incredible, and uh, they really give you insight into why America was birthed and how we are just sitting in their eye every day. Now, with all this entitlement and and victimization and special groups and special this and special that, all men were created equal. You get to guarantee the pursuit of happiness, but you're not guaranteed happiness. That's up to you.
1: Well, and the signers that we're going, we're going uh, colony by colony, state by state, was state. So the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And Massachusetts has one of the most famous signers out of all of them. Most people don't know the other ones that we've been doing at all, but everyone's going to recognize the names of these signers. So I'm going to start with that. So the delegation from Massachusetts to sign a Declaration of Independence was Don Adams, and of course you know Abigail, which we are going to talk about, and she's his wife. Samuel Adams, he had two wives, Elizabeth Checkley and Elizabeth Wells, which I found fascinating. He, he, he married two Elizabeths. Eldbridge, Eldbridge Gary, which is a fascinating signer that a lot of people don't really know about, but he is one of the more famous ones. And he married Anne Thompson. John Hancock, everybody knows. And, of course, you know he uh, married Dorothy Quincy, which I'm going to – this is very interesting when all these Quincy's come in, too. And, um, and Robert Treat Payne, you know, Payne, and he married Sally Cobb. So we're not going to get to all of them today. It's going to be a two-parter. I've already counted on that. And I want it to be because there's a lot of information here. Do uh, you know Massachusetts was at the center of the rebellion? It was Massachusetts that got this ball rolling that we call the republic. And this is, it's not to diminish anybody else because actually all the other colonies we've really, really shown how important each one of them each one of them played a very, very important role. And this is just the more famous one.
2: And this is where everything began. And this is where Deb was born and raised. Yes. Yeah, I am Massachusetts, bred and born. Okay. So
1: I got the names out, and what I'd like to do, since Deb is such an expert on this, and also she wants to uh, contrast how it was back then with now, we're going to start with a history, a brief history of Massachusetts, and how it was founded.
2: Okay. Well, let's see. I am... uh, Basically, the European history in Massachusetts begins with adventurous explorers who roved about the coast of Massachusetts centuries before the Mayflower made its voyage. I mean, there is uh, the legend that Leif Erikson and his Norsemen touched here in the year 1,000, te, uh, one 1000. And again, to Castornets, um, no, 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 that was the fishermen from France and Spain off the Grand Banks. And then John Cabot carried through the explorations upon which England based her original claim to North America. Okay, so basically people came and and explored, and John Smith and was there. And let me see, I'm just trying to. I mean, this, this is is um, basically England looking for resources and you know settlements that would be financially uh, solvent for them. And then there was the Pilgrims, who were seeking religious freedom. And then there were the Puritans. And that was um, really a, a big part of Massachusetts, because they were determined to find a place where their religious views and practices would be free from persecution. And uh, that set off um, other groups coming to, you know, that, that had different, uh, because remember, in England, if you weren't part of the Anglican church which was the official church of england you were considered um not to be trusted you know like the catholics i mean we went in a, a couple of weeks ago we went into the whole um religious war uh when we did maryland um I mean, between the Catholics and the Protestants and then, you know, King Henry VIII made his own church and then there was Mary and then there was Elizabeth and basically the Protestants won and anyone who did not, uh, worship under the Church of England was, were persecuted and, and, uh, tried for heresy and terrible things and so they escaped and they came to America, um, and uh, that led to the uh, granting uh, uh, a royal charter to the Massachusetts Bay Company to promote the settlement of the territory from sea to sea that had been granted to the Puritans and the governor's colonies. And that led to the colonization of Massachusetts and uh, yeah when john winthrop and a large group of puritans arrived at salem in 1630 i, I mean i just went through a whole bunch of, of history and and hopefully you'll look it up because it's really interesting the differences um that occurred within uh the exploration and then the, the trying to set up colonies and and the the uh, financial aspect of it the religious aspect of it so i, I just can't encapsulized all that. But now, John Winthrop and his Puritans arrived in Salem in 1630, bearing with them the prize charter. A self-contained English colony governed by its own members was assured. Winthrop moved from Salem to Charlestown and thence to Boston. Other settlements were founded, and by 1640, the immigrants in Massachusetts numbered 16,000 all seeking greater opportunity in a free environment for the dissentient religious views. Many also felt it was their mission to civilize the land and its people. And the seal of Massachusetts Bay Colony shows a Native American saying, come over and help us. Um, and this is from the Secretary of State Massachusetts.us website. Okay, so the colonizing movement spread rapidly along the coast and then westward. Those who are restless and rebellious against the rigid rules of the ministers went out into what are now other England, New England states, founding towns based upon the Massachusetts pattern. Small scale farming was the fundamental way of earning a living, and a compact settlements with outlying fields grew up around the central green, which is a characteristic of old New England towns. The long winters gave leisure for handicraft, and Yankee ingenuity first showed itself in the variety of products the farmers turned out to supply their own and their neighbors' needs. The most enduring feature of the community pattern was the town meeting in which every taxpayer had equal voice. In evolving that most democratic of governmental procedures, Massachusetts contributed greatly to the political development of the nation. Now, The the Massachusetts Bay Colony worked out its problems without interference from across the sea until 1660 when the Stuarts were restored to the throne. Remember we talked about the Stuarts in the Hanovers and the um, Pentangents, and oh my goodness, you know, England was in Thomas Cromwell and that wonderful period in English history. But, anyways, so after the stewards were restored to the throne, a policy of stricter control was instituted. Massachusetts. Doubtly resisted all attempts at regulation from abroad and consequently lost its charter in 1684, becoming a part of the dominion of New England under the administration of Sir Edmund, Edmund Andros. Massachusetts continued to oppose the will of the crown for four years, and when James II fled in 1688, the Puritans failed in their attempt to revive the Massachusetts Bay Company and Massachusetts in 1691 became a royal province under a governor appointed by the crown. Two legislative houses were permitted, however, and the requirement that every voter must be a church member was abolished. The new restrictions, incidental to the status of a royal province, applied in Massachusetts and elsewhere provoked the series of controversies that culminated in the Revolutionary War. During the end of the 17th century, And the beginning of the 18th century, Massachusetts grew in population and in maritime trade. These were the years of the so-called Second Hundred Years' War between France and England. In these wars, in 1688 to 1760, Massachusetts played an important part. Its crowning feat was the capture in 1745 of the Fortress of Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, A fortress so strong it was known as the Gibraltar of America. At the same time, Massachusetts' maritime trade, especially with Caribbean ports, rose to the point that Boston was known as the Mart of the West Indies. Law enforcement of the restrictive laws, due to the fact that England was engrossing through much of the 18th century by a series of wars with France, gave Massachusetts a breathing spell. The conduct of colonies, however, in carrying on trade with the enemy during these struggles of the mother country and their failure to pay a fixed share of the war's expenses finally brought about a stricter colonial policy. Now, of course, this is after King um, George III has taken the throne. And as we said before, he uh, was determined to put more uh, power back into um, into the throne his father and his grandfather, the other Georges, and this was the Georgian period, had left most of the legislating up to the parliament. They just wanted to be king and have fun and you know do stately things but not really get into the governing of the country. But King George III had different ideas. So he, with his prime minister, uh, decided that um, the Sugar Act which almost abolished the foreign trade upon which Massachusetts depended for its gold, and the Stamp Act, which taxed out of the colony most of the funds remaining to her, were good ideas. Well, Massachusetts didn't think so. Riding and boycotts brought about the repeal of the Sugar Act in 1766, but other repress- repressive measures followed, and the people of Massachusetts were active in their defiance of new- each new imposition the Boston Massacre of March 5th, 1770. When British soldiers of the garrison stationed in that recalcitrant town fled upon, fired upon a taunting crowd of citizens was an anonymous portent of the revolution to come. When the Tea act was passed in 1773, it gave overwhelming subsidies by means of a tax rebate to the East India Company. Samuel Adams organized and directed a group of Bostonians disguised as Indians and dumped the cargoes of three East India Company ships into Boston Harbor. England retaliated by closing the port of Boston and by other intolerable acts, and the colonial patriots called a Continental Congress that ordered a general boycott of English goods. On April 19, 1775, the embattled farmers, warned by the historic rise of Paul Revere and William Dawes and several other people, including civil uh, Ludenton, was that her name? Uh, L- uh, Sybil Ludenton, who also rode to warn the people that the regulars were coming. He did not say the British are coming. He said the regulars are coming. Uh and so they they just uh, don't think. Okay, I've just missed my point because I got distracted by my own thoughts. Um. Okay. In the colonial patriots called the Continental Congress, that ordered general general boycott of English goods on April 17 or April 19, 1775. The embattled farmers, warned by the historical rise of Paul Revere and William Dawes, engaged the British regulars at Lexington and Concord, firing the shot heard round the world. There followed the siege of Boston, the glorious defeat at the Battle of Bunker Hill, and on March 17, 1776, the British evacuation. Massachusetts, where the first blood of the revolution was shed, had won the most important victory hereafter the state had no enemy troops within its borders. And that brings us up to after the war, but we won't get into that right now. But this is uh Massachusetts was really quite busy, um being a great port. You know, it it was uh, there was three great ports, of course. There was New York Harbor, and then there was Boston Harbor, and then Charleston, and those were the three main ports. But when they closed Boston, that took care of the north, the northern um, part of the colonies, and uh, it really cut off. Um, They were importing so much because at the time the colonies were exporting raw materials and importing manufactured goods because they didn't have the manufacturing going at that time. They were more craftsmen and and whatnot, but they didn't have the big manufacturing things. But they grew stuff, and that's what England wanted. So... That's why the ports were so, so very important to the colonies. And that brings us up to our ladies.
1: Right. Now, our ladies, Abigail, and especially Elizabeth Adams, are going to be in two different parts of Massachusetts. The other ladies stayed pretty much in Massachusetts with the signers, um, their husbands. And the interesting thing about the Adam and Abigail Adams is because they had a farm. So there was a commute from the farm to Boston, from Boston to the farm, and they were the only ones that were actually outside of Boston when a lot of this stuff happened. But it's interesting to note, where these places were in relation to Boston, because we are going to be talking about the siege of Boston. So did you find out anything about Braintree? I did. I did. Now, this is where Abigail is going. That's, this is at Adamson's farm. Yes. Abigail and John Adamson's farm. Yes. And we're also going to talk about Lexington, because Samuel Adams' wife, Elizabeth, was in Lexington, and we've actually highlighted them on this show. Um, was in Lexington when the shots were first fired. So we want to give you kind of an, an idea of where these two places are in relation to Boston, because Boston gets cut off, and these two women are outside of it. The other ones are in, but these two are outside. Okay. So we'll start with Abigail, because I'm going to be, uh, you
2: know, talking about her right after this. Okay. So you want me to start about Braintree? Yep. All right. You have to remember, I have like ten windows open right now. So I can be patient with me as I find the correct one, because it's only like three letters at the top. Um, okay, the first English settlement in the area that is now Braintree, Mass., was by a Captain Wollaston, who in 1625, with a company of thirty or four colonists, cleared the land and built log huts on the seaward slopes of the hills, and is what is now the city of Quincy. The settlement was called Mount Wallaston. Captain Wollaston remained only about a year and left, then left for Virginia with many of his followers. I betcha he did. Massachusetts winters were fierce. After his departure, one of his company, Thomas Morton, assumed the leadership of the colony and renamed it Marymount. Morton was very most definitely not a Puritan, and the revelry and loose morals of the men at Marymount shocked the Pilgrims in nearby Plymouth. They even had the audacity to erect a maypole and dance and frolic with Indian women. In 1627, the scandalized Pilgrims sent Captain Miles Standish to arrest Morton, who was then sent back to England. He didn't mess with the Pilgrims or the Puritans. Apparently, Morton was not of that ilk. The Pilgrims, who had no authority to take this action, claimed that Morton was selling liquor, guns, and ammunition to the Indians, thus creating a threat to their colony. Morton claimed that the real reason for his expulsion from New England was that he and his men were better at trapping and trading with the Indians and were therefore an economic threat to the settlers at Plymouth. See, politics was happening even then amongst the religious, you know, I mean, it was just, oh, People think that the politics of today is something new and horrendous. No, 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 as no. As, as, as soon as there were two politicians, there were politics. In 1634, the area was annexed to Boston and a number of land grants were made to residents of Boston, most of whom merely held the land rather than settle there. In 1639, the general court at Boston gave permission to a Martin Saunders to keep a house of entertainment at Mount Wooliston. The next year, Saunders was allowed to draw wine there. Between 1635 and 37, grants of land in the area of Mount Wollaston were made to William Coggington, who was later to figure prominently in the founding of Portsmouth, Rhode Island, to William Hutchinson, whose wife, Anne, was excommunicated for her liberal religious views and who then moved to Rhode Island, and to Reverend John Wheelwright, Anne Hutchinson's brother-in-law, who was in agreement with her religious views. And if you get a chance to read about Anne Hutchinson, please do, because she was a tremendous woman. Among these people and in this liberal religious atmosphere, Thomas and Anne Brownwell chose to make their first home in America. Whether the choice was made because of their religious beliefs or because good tillable land was available there in 1638 is not known. Let's see. Agriculture... Was the basis of the early life of Braintree, grazing and the growing of crops were the main occupation of the settlers. The fact that the town minister was paid part of his salary in wood, barley, peas, Indian corn, and malt indicates the kind of crops raised there. And education was a vital concern to the people of Braintree as it was to the Massachusetts Bay Colony as a whole. The earliest surviving town record established a school fund which was used to pay most of the schoolmaster's salary. There was no free education, except in cases of extreme poverty. Parents paid varying fees in money or in kind. These fees also went towards the payment of the schoolmaster's salary. As in other towns of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the town of Braintree assumed responsibility for the support of the church, thus effectively uniting church and state, as in the other Puritan settlements in New England, This would have countered the liberal religious ideas of the early grantees, such as Coddington and Hutchinson. The changing religious climate, as well as the lack of new tillable land, may be reasons why Thomas and Ann Brownwell decided to move to uh, Portsmouth, Rhode Island, where there was greater religious freedom and much available land. Okay, they moved to... Let's see. They moved to... That, that they moved to an area first settled by religious dissenters, and that was universally scorned by the rest of the, New England as a place that admitted, according to Cotton Mather, everything in the world but Roman Catholics and true Christians would lend credence to the idea that Brownwell held more relig- liberal religious views than did their conservative neighbors in Braintree. So that gives you a kind of an idea of, you know, the... Um, well, the flavor of Braintree at the time. I mean, this was in the 1600s, but you have to remember that Abigail Adams was a Puritan. <clears throat> she was a Puritan stock, which if you read about her, you know, in, in detail, she was a plain woman of plain speech and plain dress. And, uh, you know, other people, other uh Arist- aristocratic women made fun of her for this. But anyway, so there is Braintree. Now, if you look at a map of Massachusetts in the 1700s, especially the the eastern end where Boston is, you will notice that in 1700s, Boston looks like an island with just that little neck. Which played a very important part in the siege of Boston. Um, what has happened to the? I don't know what year this they started, but what they did was they filled in that neck and made Boston basically a part of the mainland. So it looks very very different from from uh, it did then, and um, and it's grown out so much, and it, it's like. Braintree, Lexington, Concord, Cambridge, you know, and, and all those areas, they're like, you know, they might be 20-minute drive, well, depending on traffic, of course, because you're coming out of Boston, <laughs> which is horrible. Um, but, I mean, they they're just neighboring towns today. You just get in your car and you go. You know hopefully the traffic isn't screwed up, or that you know the Massachusetts uh government hasn't decided to tear up all the freeways and whatnot for construction but back then uh, if you went to visit somebody in Lexington, you usually stayed overnight, or if you were going from Lexington to Boston or Concord to Boston or Braintree you didn't you know you could get home the same day but that was pushing it and mostly when you went to visit people in boston from the neighboring towns you stayed the night and vice versa it was just easier that way because you were on horseback or in a carriage which is quite different than highways and motorcars so that's brain tree it, it was and when you think about adams and uh, John Adams and Abigail Adams, um, you have to read about the Puritans. You have to read um, how they were in, you know, religious their, – their religion was uh, 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 intertwined all through their day. Everything they did was in God's eyes. Um, you thought, you know, whatever decision you made about anything, yes, you know, you, it was under God's direction. Uh, you tried to do it to please God, you know, in a way to please God. I mean, it wasn't like they just went to church on Sunday. No, 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 no. They got up in the morning and they had prayers. They had prayers during the day and they had prayers at night. And in between prayer time, they, they, their work was uh, for God their their um house was for God, the raising of their children were for God, their their dress was for God, their food was from God, for God. I mean they ate correctly. Um everything was for God and by God. You have to remember this. And it was a strict God. You know, it 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 it's it, it's a very interesting, you know, the puritanical uh Spirituality is is very interesting, well, to me, because basically I come from that stock, <laughs> ah, which cracks me up. Um, so that was where John Adams and Abigail uh, Adams, Quincy Adams, um, you know, that's, that's how they became the people they were, uh, very much um, of strength and character and religious um focus behind every action that they took of course john adams being being who he was uh, he really had you know he had a tough time of it um you know, i mean he knew he was a, 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 uh, what's the word um oh you know he was he was uh egotistical and he and abrasive he was very abrasive You know, he wasn't a diplomat, and he knew this, and and he tried, and he had Elbegale help him, and she did. And when his his, uh, ego ego got uh, the better of him, she would just go down vanity, you know, in a letter or to his face. (laughs) She kept him in line. So, anyways, that's the settlement of Braintree. Now, Lexington, um, it's in Middlesex County. Uh... Let me get that page. Wait a minute. Yes, okay. Oh, that's a book. Oh, dear, I didn't realize. Uh, Anyways, if you want to read a history of the town of Lexington, Charles Hudson over at Google Books has it, and it was written in 1913. We're not going to go there, though. Um, Let's see. Yeah, da-da-da-da. Maybe this is the right one. No, oh, that's another book. See, so there are so many books. Um,
1: yeah, but you have to pay for them.
2: Yes, yes, and I'm afraid that right now I'm I'm basically getting free eBooks because I can't afford books right now.
1: Yep, I know.
2: Yes. But okay. Like, um. See, Lexington is located 11 miles northwest of Boston. And east of Concord. And it's like two to three hours driving distance from Cape Cod and the beaches of New Hampshire, Maine, and Rhode Island, Connecticut. So you see, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it was all, I mean, when you look at the 1700 map, it looks like everything's really spread out. Well, because today, you know it's basically one town bumps into the next bumps into the next bumps into the next so that is uh that's uh what we wanted to bring out was you know that these these back then it would seem like um well for me when I lived in california it would if if any of you are are uh are um familiar with California, it was like going from San Francisco to San Jose. Or north to uh um Richmond, you know I mean it wasn't nothing but in a car, but it was a good day's walk on a horse, so there you are and oh dear. Well, you said that they have, used to have islands that they don't have anymore. Well, you no, know, they're still there. But, you know, because um, because of the change in uh, in um, the uh, landscape, too, it's not as far to some of these islands that they talk about. And some of these islands are, are very, very tiny. And a lot of them had fortifications on them because of the, um, well, the British put fortifications on them to keep, I mean, because she was fighting with ants and everything. So there were, there were uh, like, you know, small forts and whatnot in some of these islands. And, and of course, you know, you have Nantucket and, and uh, oh, what's the other one, Martha's Vineyard and all the, you know, the famous, islands but there are a lot of little tiny islands too and of course over the you know the course of the years they've changed from when they were how they were then so it's really interesting to look at the map at that time you know um to see how i mean if you put up today's map against the the 76 map you wouldn't even or seventy seventeen hundreds 1700s maps you you wouldn't you wouldn't even know where you'd been in Boston, <laughs> you know. It's like, Boston looks so little, and it was it wasn't that big, and it was almost an island. So
1: okay, we're gonna start on Abigail Adams, and this is from uh, NotableBiographies.com. I'm going to be going between two sites on Abigail. And the other one is going to be ducksters.com for little for kids. And whenever we come across, Deb is really good about research to make sure that it's accurate. But every once in a while they flip something in, so we have to refute it. And we will be doing that if it needs to be. Abigail Smith was born in Weymouth, Massachusetts on November 11, 1770. 1744, to William and Elizabeth Quincy Smith. There's that name again, Deb Quincy. Yeah. Her well-educated father was a minister of the North Parish Congreg- Congregational Church of Weymouth. Although many of Abigail's relatives were well to do merchants and ship captains, she was raised in a simple world setting. She was ed- educated at home, learning domestic skills such as sewing, fine needlework, and cooking along with reading and writing. She took advantage of her father's expensive library to broaden her knowledge. Her lack of formal education became a lifelong regret. As an adult, she favored equal education for women, and she actually did do that for her own children. She once argued that educated mothers raised educated children. God, wouldn't that be nice now? Uh Uh-huh. Right now, moron mothers are raising moron children.
2: Uh,
1: now um, I'm going to go to the other one because I want to talk about their meeting. Okay, Abigail. Abigail was a young lady when she first. This is from uh, Doctors. Abigail was a young lady when she first met John Adams, a young country lawyer. John was a friend of her sister Mary's fiancé. Over time, John and Abigail found they enjoyed each other's company. Abigail liked John's sense of humor and his ambition. John was attracted to Abigail's intelligence and wit. She was a highly intelligent woman. She had really, really good common sense, and I am sorry. If it was not for Abigail, John Adams would never become president of the United States. In 1762, the couple became engaged to be married. Abigail's father liked John and thought he was a good match. Her mother, however, wasn't so sure. She thought Abigail could do better than a country lawyer. The marriage was delayed due to an outbreak of, of smallpox. But finally, the couple was married on October 25, 1763. Abigail's father presided over the wedding. Abigail and John had six children, including Abigail, John Quincy, Susanna, Charles, Thomas, and Elizabeth. Unfortunately, Susanna and Elizabeth died young, as was common in those days.
2: Now, I'm going to go back to... Letter. I have a letter that she wrote John um, in 1763 before they were married. Okay, read it. Yes. It says, this is August 11th from Weymouth. My friend. She always called him her, his, her friend. Oh. I mean, these letters, it, it, this is from the uh, massach- mass- MassHist.org, MassachusettsHistory.org. Um, they have a whole. Uh, the Adams Collection, it's digitized, and it has all the, their letters to each other. It is just, oh, I get goosebumps just reading them. But this is, this is before they were married in 63. If I was sure your absence today was occasioned by what it generally is, either to wait upon company or promote some good work, I freely confess my mind would be much more at ease than at present it is. Yet this uneasiness does not arise from any apprehension of slight or neglect, but a fear lest you are indisposed, for that you should be, you said you, you you said should be your only hindrance. Humanity obliges us to be affected with the distresses and miseries of our fellow creatures. Friendship is a band yet stronger, which causes us to feel with greater tenderness the afflictions of our friends. And there is a tie more binding than humanity and stronger than friendship, which makes us anxious for the happiness and welfare of those to whom it binds us. It makes their misfortunes, sorrows, and afflictions our own. Unite these, and there is a threefold cord. By this cord I am not ashamed to own myself bound, nor do I believe that you are wholly free from it. Judge you then for your Diana, has she not this day had sufficient cause for your pain and anxiety of mind? She bids me tell you that Seneca, for the sake of his Paulina, was careful and tender of his health. The health and happiness of Seneca, she says, was not dearer to his Paulina than that of Lysander to his Diana. The fabric often wants repairing, and if we neglect it, the deity will not long inhabit it. Yet after all our care and solicitude to preserve it, it is a tottering building and often reminds us that it will finally fall. Adieu may find this you in better health, and I fare it well and happy as your Diana wishes you. Accept this hasty scrawl, warm from the heart of your sincere Diana." She called herself Diana in her letters to him. Um, it was something she did. Um, they kind of used a, a, a an altar. What, what would you call it? Um, they they would pick a a, a, a name from ancient history. And, and anyway, so it was something that she did. But I mean, it just so sweet. She's so full. Oh, and as you can see, you know, religion, God was you know, ever-present and everything. So that was one letter that she wrote to him.
1: Well, and again, because they were such religious people back then, and free people in America, most of the marriages were through love, not arranged. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Although they did travel in the same circles, so they knew each other's families, that whole dynamic there. But by and large, it was just for love, and that's not how it was in Europe. No, no. Okay, so they got married. John um, Adams, a struggling Harvard-educated country lawyer, nine years her, was nine years her senior. Although John Adams was not from a prominent family, the couple was well matched intellectually and the marriage was a happy one. He admired and encouraged Abigail's outspokenness and intelligence. She supported him by running the family farm, raising their children, listening to him, and trying to help him with his problem. And that was that's absolutely true. He, well, as, as did most of the, the founders that we're talking about, they relied heavily despite what the Pragues and the, um, what do you call it? Now I lost my train of thought. Um, the Pragues basically tell you. These women's opinions were highly, highly regarded back then. They had no problems leaving their wives to tend to uh, their regular affairs as well as um, run a business and run a plantation. They had no problems with it. Um, I'm so, I get so sad that this was hidden from us for so long, right, Deb? Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, during the first years of their marriage, John Adams was mostly in Boston, Massachusetts, building his law career and becoming involved with the growing political unrest. This political unrest was brought about by the English government's attempts to tighten control over its colonies. Through the passage of laws and new taxes that many colonists did not support, which Deb just highlighted again when she was doing the history, Abigail, however, remained at Braintree, Massachusetts, to run the family farm. Um, and see, this is—I don't—this is totally wrong. So the although women at that time did not normally hand, handle business affairs, as both they did. Abigail traded livestock, hired help, bought land, oversaw construction, and supervised the planting and harvesting. I hope in time to have the reputation of being a good foreignist, as my partner was of being a good statesman, she once wrote. During the next few years, hostilities between the American colonies and Great Britain increased, forcing John Adams away from home more often. He was chosen as a delegate to the First Continental Congress. He traveled constantly in addition to those duties, trying to earn as much money as he could practicing law. He tried to make these difficult times easier by writing long letters to Abigail, sometimes several a day. She, in turn, wrote to her husband of her own loneliness, doubts, and fears. She suffered from migraines and chronic insomnia. Despite her own bouts with illness, she gave birth to five children. So now, Deb found wonderful letters from John to Abigail.
2: Yeah. Oh, God, there's so many. Um, I'm just picking them. um, from, uh, you know, oops, damn it, hold on, I just hit the wrong button, and it all went away, so hold on, I'm getting there, okay, so, this is, these are the letters from their, um, from during courtship and then the early legal career, 62 to 74, so let's get up here, um, To let's get up to 74 uh, because we're going to be getting into the time of the declaration. So, this is July 5th, um, 1774. Uh, This is from John Adams to Abigail. My dear, Mr. Winthrop, Mr. Quincy, and I came this morning from York before breakfast, 15 miles, in order to hear my learned friend Hemingway. Mr. Quincy brought me a letter from Williams in which he he lets me know that you and the family were well. This is very refreshing news. We went to meeting at Wells and had the pleasure of hearing, my friend, upon be not partakers in other men's sins, keep yourselves pure." Mr. Hemingway came and kindly invited us to dine, but we had engaged a dinner at Littlefield. So we returned there, dined, and took our horses to meeting in the afternoon and heard the minister again upon, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There is a great pleasure in hearing sermons so serious, so clear, so sensible and instructive as these. We went to Mr. Hemingway's, and as it rained a little, he put up out our horses and we took a bed with him. You, never, you know I never get or save any, anything by cozening or classmating, so I gave pisterines enough among the children and servants to have paid twice for my entertainment. Josiah Quincy, always impetuous and vehement, would not stop, but drove forward. I suppose that he might get upon the fishing ground before his brother Sam and me. I find that the divines and lawyers this way are all Tories. Brother Hemingway is as impartial as any I have seen or heard of. James Sullivan seems half inclined to be a Whig. Mr Winthrop has just been making some observations which I think worth sending to you. Upon reading an observation in the farmer's fourth letter that some of our, the Massachusetts resolves and publications, had better have been suppressed. Mr Winthrop said that many things in our newspapers ought to have been suppressed. For example, whenever there was the least popular commotion or disturbance, it was instantly put in all the newspapers in this province. But in all the other provinces, they took care to conceal and suppress every such thing. See, even, you know, you're talking about the the, uh, newspapers today. Yeah, well, you know, that's the way it was then, too. (laughs) Another thing he says, we ought to avoid all paragraphs in our papers about our own manufacturers especially all vaporing, puffing advertisements about them, because such paragraphs only tend to provoke the ministry, merchants, and manufacturers in England to confine and restrain or prohibit our manufacturers. But our presses in Boston, Salem, and Newburyport are under no regulation nor any judicious prudent care. Therefore, it seems impractical to keep out such imprudences. The printers are hot, indiscreet men, and they are under the influence of others as hot, rash, and, ju- and ju- judicious as themselves very often. For my own part, it has long been my resolution to avoid being concerned in counseling or aiding or abetting any tumult or disorder, to avoid all exceptional scribbling in the newspaper of every kind, to avoid all passion and personal altercation or reflections. I have found it difficult to keep these resolutions exactly all, but the last, however, I have religiously and punctuously observed these six years. Arrived last oh, this is the next day arrived last evening at Falmouth and procured a new place to lodge at Miss Houston's. Quincy and I have taken a bed together my brother Neg Freeman came to pay his respects to me and to invite me to a bed in his house but I was fixed before and therefore thanked him and excused myself it is a very neat house where we sleep the desk and tables shine like mirrors the floors are clean and white and nicely sanded etc but when shall I get home this tedious journey will produce me very little profit I never saw fall before with such lean expectations and empty pockets I am much concerned for my family these acts of parliament and ministerial manoeuvres will injure me both in my property and business as much as any person whatever in proportion signed John Adams Let's see okay let's uh find an abigail okay all right, this is, um, no, wait a minute, 74, let's see, from Abigail to John. Okay, this is in uh, from Braintree, August 74. The great distance between us makes the time appear very long to me. It seems already a month since you left me. The great anxiety I feel for my country, for you and for our family, renders the days tedious. The night's unpleasant. The rocks and quicksands appear upon every side. What course you can or will take is all wrapped in the bo- bosom of the future futurity. Uncertainty and expectation leave the mind great scope. Did ever any kingdom or state regain their liberty when once it was invaded without bloodshed? I cannot think of it without horror. Yet we are told that all the misfortunes of Sparta were occasioned by their two Great solicitude for present tranquility, and by any excessive love of peace, they neglected the means of making it sure and lasting. They ought to have reflected, says Polybius, that as there is nothing more desirable or advantageous than peace when founded in justice and honor, so there is nothing more shameful and at the same time more pernicious than when attained by bad measures, and purchased at the price of liberty. Boy, we should send that paragraph to Congress. I have received a most charming letter from our friend Mrs. Warren. She desires me to tell you that her best wishes attend you through your journey, both as a friend and patriot, hopes you will have no uncommon difficulties to surmount or hostile movements to impede you. But if the Locrians should interrupt you, she hopes you will be aware beware that no future annals may say you chose an ambitious Philip for your leader who subverted the noble order of the American and amb- oh and amphish I don't know how to say that. <laughs> and I have to look that word up. I don't even know what it means. And built up a monarchy on the ruins of the happy institution. I have taken a very great fondness for reading Rollins' ancient history since you left me. I am determined to go through with it, if possible, in these days of solitude. I find great pleasure and entertainment from it, and I have persuaded Johnny to read me a page or two every day, and hope he will, from his desire to oblige me, entertain a fondness for it. We have had a charming rain which lasted 12 hours and has greatly revived the dying fruits of the earth. I want much to hear from you. I long impatiently to have you upon the stage of action. The 1st of September or the month of September perhaps may be of as much importance to Great Britain as the eyes of March were to Caesar. I wish you every public as well is private blessing and that wisdom which is profitable both for instruction and edification to conduct you in this difficult day. The little flock remember Papa and kindly wish to see him. So does your most affectionate Abigail Adams. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, I mean, oh, the art of letter writing. Too bad it's now down to 140 characters on Twitter. Oh, I know. There's so many more. I mean, if Well, you, we
1: might have some more later.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, it's just, you could spend hours reading these letters. There's so many of them. Bless them for keeping them. Okay.
1: Well, but the importance of this is she's all alone. And so was Mrs. Benjamin Franklin for almost the entire time they were married. Yep. I mean, the only thing with Abigail and John is that they got to retire together because Benjamin didn't even get to retire with his wife. She died before he even got back from France. No, from uh, England. From England. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm not sure about this. Um, it says in this ducksters.com that in 1768 the family moved from Braintree to the big city of Boston.
2: Okay. But I
1: I do seem to remember he was there during the Boston Massacre. I'm so she was with him,
2: right? Um, I didn't think she was. Uh, let's see. She might have been. Because um, it's, it's, uh, they had a house in Boston. They did. And she didn't like to be there. She'd rather be at the farm, of course. And she was a lot because she had to look after it. But she might have been there with him at the time.
1: Um, she might have taken. Well, regardless, um, I'm going to go back to what I wanted to talk about with her being alone. Um, let's see. With John, with John away at the Continental Congress, Abigail, this is from Duxter, Abigail had to take care of the family. She had to make all sorts of decisions, manage the finances, take care of the farm, and educate the children. She also missed her husband terribly as he was gone for a very long time. In addition to this, much of the war was taking place close by. Part of the Battle of Lexington and Concord was fought, only 20 miles from her home. Escaping soldiers, and this is important, escaping soldiers hid in her house, soldiers trained in her yard, and she even melted utensils to make musket balls for the soldiers. Now, that's pretty amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. When the Battle of Bunker Hill was fought, Abigail woke to the sound of the canyon. Abigail and John Quincy climbed a nearby hill to witness the burning of Charleston. At that time, she was taking care of the children of a family friend, Dr. Joseph Warren, who died during the battle. During the war, Abigail wrote many letters to her husband, uh, John, about all that was happening. Over the years, they wrote over 1,000 letters to each other. Now, I'm going to go back to her biography. When the Revolutionary War began with the battles of Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts on April 17, 1775. Now, this is all happening before the Declaration of Independence is signed, ladies and gentlemen. And I think they got it wrong. But it says a year later, on July 4, 1776, the Congress approved the declaration. No, they didn't. They didn't do it on July 4. It was not signed. Now, they are saying they approved it.
2: They approved it on the 4th. But they signed it um
1: August second.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, because while this was all going on, these guys were scrambling to get back to their families. They right. had a journey. Okay, so let me finish this up and then we'll do um the Siege of Boston. Uh hold on and let me get that up. But yeah, they you know, unlike these cockroaches now, um, these people went home as much as they could. They didn't they had they had things to do. They had um you know no, well, that's not the right one. They had uh businesses, they had family, um they didn't just stick didn't just stick around. Um let me see, where is the why do I keep missing everything? Oh there it is. I okay. guess. Okay. So now, uh, John Adams was called back to the Continental Congress. On June 15, 1775, Continental Congress made George Washington Commander-in-Chief of the American Army. The Congress also set up a government for the colonies. A year later, on July 4, 1776, the Congress approved the Declaration of Independence, in which the American colonies declared their independence from the government of Great Britain. During the war, Abigail provided meals and lodging to soldiers who stopped at the Adams homes at all hours of the day and night. In the fall of 1775, the inhabitants of Braintree suffered an epidemic of dysentery, an often fatal bowel infection. Abigail had to nurse her sick relatives in addition to caring for her children. Her mother and five other members of her family eventually died from the illness. So, I'm going to do now um, the Siege of Boston because he was away and Boston was being sieged and she was there by herself, okay? And how many miles did you say Braintree was from Boston Common? About 11 or
2: 15.
1: Yeah, that's like, yeah, that's so freaking close, Deb. I know. <laughs> Okay, so this is from MassHistory.org. The Siege of Boston was the 11-month period from April 19, 1775 to March 17, 1776, when American militiamen effectively contained British troops within Boston. And after the Battle of Bunker Hill to the peninsula of Charleston. And that's not Charleston, South Carolina. No, no. Uh,
2: Charlestown, Massachusetts.
1: The American or Provincial Armed Forces were initially called the New England Army, formed from the militiamen who answered alarm on April 19, 1775, and then became part of the Continental Army when it was established in June 1775. During the siege, many residents moved out of Boston, and some loyalists from the surrounding countryside moved into town. Conditions within the town were harsh for all who remained, and this is where... um, Sam Adams and his wife is going to be, and it's also where um, the, uh, um, where am I? I'm losing my notes here. <laughs> That's actually where, um, yeah, the Adams is going to be there, and if we get to it, the the uh, Eldridge, Gary and his family were in Boston at this time. And he was also another signer of the, of the Declaration of Independence, and these—all these women that were in Boston at the time, and even um, Abigail, just outside of Boston—they were all alone, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we're, we're highlighting this. Their their men, their husbands were off signing a piece of paper that could get them killed, but they were already in harm's way, and they were by themselves with their children. You know, it's after. You know, after the, uh, what was it, the South American War, the Spanish American War? Um, After that, we didn't, we have never fought wars on our soil. We don't know how this feels. I think that's part of the problem that these women, these lesbians and transgender and all these people feel so entitled. They don't know how it feels to be alone in war. I know. Okay, I keep forgetting what I'm trying to talk about. They're not what? What's what? feminists? <laughs> the feminazis. <laughs> That's what I keep to say. Okay, um, conditions within the town were harsh for all who remained. Although the British maintained control of Boston Harbor, provisions dwindled while they waited for supply ships to arrive. The siege continued until George Washington, commander of the Continental Army, seized. And fortified Dorchester Heights, just outside Boston. And if you want to, you can kind of explain to these people where the, the all these these places are,
2: because
1: um, you you know you lived there.
2: Yeah. Well, no, I didn't live there. I lived at the other end of the, of the but I've been there. I lived in the sticks, honey. Yeah, you were in the sticks. I was in the sticks. That's why I don't park my car. Okay, so
1: the D'Orster Heights, just outside Boston on the night of March 4, 1776 using artillery captured by an expedition led by Henry Knox from Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point. Washington's forces aimed cannons at British ships anchored in the harbor. On March 17th, the British were finally forced to evacuate Boston. Uh, let's see. Okay. So, that what was going on while all of these ladies' husbands were gone. So just to give you an idea how dicey everything was. Okay, so let's see. What do we got next? Um, did that. We did that. Oh, do you have some of the letters that she wrote, like, during the season of Boston?
2: Yeah, I have one from June 25th where she was in Braintree. Okay. And it, it, it's a it's a long one, but she, she talks about um, the news because he's at the Continental Congress, so. Right. My father has been more affected with the destruction of Charlestown than with anything which has there heretofore taken place. Why should not his continence be sad when the city, the place of his father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Scarcely one stone remaineth upon another." But in the midst of sorrow, we have abundant cause of thankfulness that so few of our brethren are numbered with the slain, whilst our enemies were cut down like the grass before the scythe. But one officer of all the Welsh Fusiliers remains to tell a story. Many poor wretches die for want of proper assistance and care of their wounds. Every, every account agrees in fifteen and fourteen and fifteen hundred slain and wounded upon their side. Nor can I learn that they dissembled the number themselves. We had some heroes that day who fought with amazing intrepidity intrepidity, and courage. Um, And then she quotes Shakespeare. God, she was wonderful for not being an educated woman. I hear the General Howe should say the battle upon the plains of Abraham was but a bauble to this. When we consider all the circumstances attending this action, we stand astonished that our people were not all cut off. They had but 100 foot entrenched. The number who were engaged did not exceed 800, and they had not half ammunition enough. The reinforcements not able to get to them seasonably, the tide was up and high, so that their floating batteries came upon each side of the causeway, and their row galleys keeping a continual fire. Added to this the fire from Fort Hill and from the ship, the town in flames all around them, and the heat from the flames so intense as scarcely to be borne. the day one of the hottest we have had this season, and the wind blowing, the smoke in their faces. Only figure to yourself all these circumstances, and then consider that we do not count 60 men lost. My heart overflows at the recollection. We live in continual expectation of hostilities, Scarcely a day that does not produce some, but like good Nehemiah, having made our prayer with God and set the people with their swords, their spears, and their bows, we will say unto them, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. I have just received yours of the 17th of June uh, in seven days only. Every line from that far country is precious. You do not tell me how you do, but I will hope better." Alas, you little thought what distress we were in the day you wrote. They delight in molesting us upon the Sabbath. Two Sabbaths we have been in such alarms that we have had no meeting. This day we have sat under our own vine in quietness, having heard Mr. Mr. Taft from Psalms. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The good man was earnest and pathetic. I could forgive his weakness for the sake of his sincerity, but I long for a Cooper and an Elliot. I want a person who has feeling and sensibility who can take one up with him. Mr. Rice joins General Health Regiment tomorrow as adjutant. Your brother is very desirous of being in the Army, but your good mother is really violent against it. I cannot persuade nor reason her into consent. Neither he nor I dare let her know that he is trying for a place. My brother has a captain's commission and is stationed at Cambridge. I thought you had the best of intelligence, or I should have taken pains to have been more particular. As to Boston, there are many persons yet there who would be glad to get out if they could. Mr. Boylston and Mr. Gill, the printer with his family, are held upon the black list, tis said. Tis certain they watch them so narrowly that they will, they cannot escape, nor your brother Swift and family. Mr. Mather got out a day or two before Charleston was destroyed and had lodged his papers and what else he got out at Mr. Carey's, but they were all consumed. So were many other people who thought they might trust their little there till teams could be procured to remove them. The people from the almshouse and workhouse were sent to the lines last week to make room for their wounded, they say. Medford people are all removed. Every seaport seems in motion. O North, may the groans and cries of the injured and oppressed arrow up thy soul. We have a prodigious army, but we lack many accommodations which we need. I hope the appointment of these new generals will give satisfaction. They must be proof against calumny. In a contest like this con. Continual reports are circulated by our enemies and they catch with the unwary and the gaping crowd who are ready to listen to the marvelous without considering of consequences even though their best friends are injured. I have not ventured to inquire one word of you about your return. I do not know whether I ought to wish for it. It seems as if your sitting together was absolutely necessary whilst every day is big with events. Mr. Um, let's see. uh Mr. Baldwin called a Friday and took his leave of me, desiring I would present his affectionate regards to you. I have hopes that he will recover. He has mended a good deal. He wished he would have stayed in Tree, but his lady was fearful. I have often heard that fear makes people loving. I never so much noticed by some people as I have been since you went out of town, or rather since the 19th of April. Mr. Winslow's family are determined to be sociable. Mr. A-somebody are quite friendly. Um, I'll send, see, Tom says, I wish I could see Pa. You would laugh to see them all run upon the sight of a letter, little chickens for a crumb when the hen clucks. Charles says, Mar, what is any, what what is it any good news, and who is it for us and who is against us is the continual inquiry. Brother and sister Cranch, send their love. He has been very well since he removed for him and has full employ of his business, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then she talks about some of the the weather and and what's going on at the the farm, um, and uh, but I mean, I mean these people were living day to day with this. I mean we have been so lucky um, that we we have not had war on our. I, we have you know these lone wolf terrorist attacks, which are. Oh, bad enough but can you imagine um a town like you know 10 miles 15 miles away from you even though you know like i said there there was the narrow neck that that attached boston to the mainland uh, but still it wasn't far and and there were british troops moving continuously um in and out and people were stuck in uh, in boston um Proper, and the surrounding areas. You know, it. it, it, it I, I'm still trying to think of of a way to describe it, but it's very Massachusetts, especially having after having lived in California. You know, where my God. Hello. Hello, are you there? I am. Can you hear me?
1: I can. Yeah.
2: Okay.
0: But you
1: know, and and the other thing too, Deb, and, and I'll let you describe kind of what it's like. The other thing is, could you imagine these men getting these letters from their wives? First of all, that it it, it probably took a month to get there, so they don't even know what the hell's going on.
2: Well, a lot of times um, they would hear, you know, rumors would. In fact, in Philadelphia, when they were sitting in the, the Continental Congress, they would get news um, from the North. And, and of course, you know, it's just rumors. But they didn't know if it was true or not, where this town's burned down, the British have massacred this town, and they have families in these towns, and they don't know if their family's dead or alive until someone comes with the truth or they hear from their families.
1: Well, and they can't just leave. No. Because they're doing the work of the country, and the country has to come before them and their families. Right. And that's what I hate about these politicians. I oh. hate it because I'll tell you right now. I don't care. You know, everyone says, oh, but it's really hard on the families when they decide. Bull crap. That's bull. They could they could care less about the country. They care more about themselves and they care more about their, their friggin' their families. And that's one thing that I have to say for Trump for our President Trump to do this he really cares about the, the country because why in God's name would anyone want to do it in his position? Well, right. Um,
2: that's so all these the people there say they care about the country? No, they don't. He does. And he showed them up and that's what really, I, that's one of the, the top five things that bother them about him is he showed them up. He showed them what they are.
1: And I'm tired of the. the the so-called uh conservatives ragging on him as well. Uh-huh. He is in, he is in the vein of what he's doing. Now look, we it's such a mess. It's not going to be fixed and unless we're just trying to delay a bloody revolution like we've gone through twice. A civil war, sorry, a bloody civil war. Um but by his actions he's showing that he does
2: care about the country and these people do not. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, just last week, the week we had last week with the repeal that didn't happen, um, yeah,
1: and again, I know we see, we're not like the Patriots pub, and I'll explain the Patriots pub later we We kind of you know contrast between history and what our founding fathers went through and what's going on right now, and I just want to keep saying that. He's doing the same thing that Obama did with his executive orders, you're a
2: moron. No, he's not. He's not right. I'm you. doing Obama's executive orders.
1: If I have to hear one more person call a talk show and say, Well he's doing the same thing Obama did, I'm like, You are you are a complete idiot and moron.
2: Well, that's because they only they only listen to the media, which is not telling the truth ninety nine percent of the time. So well, you know, don't don't believe anything the media says right now because it's it's the agenda to take down Trump. Um, and he's not a politician, and the people he has around him, many of them are not politicians or or have not been in politics. Uh, like with staff, I'm talking about staff. Um, so they're not. They don't know. You know, the uh, unwritten rules per se. Um, and they are just doing things. And, of course, it's not going to be smooth because it's not the well-oiled machine that is D.C.
1: Well, and you just read, speaking of the press, you just read what the press was saying back then. It's it's always been
2: crap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were Tory newspapers and there were Whig papers. Um, And you were, you know, loyalist versus the the rebels. Okay, and, and you know, this
1: is why when they did, this is why when they did the, the Philadelphia Convention, when they were drafting the Constitution, they were very hush-hush about it, but even when they were doing the um, Constitution, that's why they were so secretive and they did not want any of Madison's notes released until after everyone who was in there
2: died. And this is why. Yeah, in fact, one of them, one of the the delegates at the constitutional convention dropped his papers his notes um and someone found them and i mean that was a big to do they 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 made a big to do about that because they didn't want anything getting out until it was done for one thing they were they were not doing what they were sent to be doing for you know number 1 they did not have permission to be doing what they were doing and they closed up all the windows and the doors, and nobody's notes were to be allowed out of their person. Yeah. Yep. Poor guy. I can't remember which delegate it was, but he dropped them, and another delegate found them. And, I mean, it was taking him aside, and, and it was all, you know, like, secretive. Here is your papers. You know, don't do this again. Um, and, and then it was brought up that you know, people, we have to keep this under wraps right?
1: <laughs> Well, the other thing that, the reason that we do the signers of the declaration is because of the timeline. People don't realize, they think, well, because nobody's educated anyway. Yeah. But they think that no conflict, that the declaration, I thought Brian has had tweets with these morons That the Declaration of Independence started all the conflict. Uh, No, the conflict was going on way before the Declaration of Independence. Started in
2: 63.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. No, actually hostilities, actual hostilities, as we're reading you on the timeline, was in 1774, 1775. Actual battles were being fought as these men were just drawing up the Declaration of Independence yeah this is how hostile England was towards us we yeah didn't even, we didn't even declare independence, and they were killing our people
2: yeah it's a, the john adams um- during his retirement was asked who was the most prominent person in in um you know the the one that that affected the the outcome you know of the independence most and he said he deferred that it was not himself but King George the 3rd was the one that set off the revolution he was the best proponent for independence it's kind of like obama being the best gun salesman in the country okay
1: so this is really close to abigail and this is happening within what a hundred mile radius? You want to say the siege, the battle? Fifty. Wow, really?
2: Oh hell yeah! Wow. Mhm. Okay, Here, so you, where I grew up, which is twenty minutes away from the New York border, it it's a three hour, three hundred miles to Boston. Massachusetts is like 300 miles long.
1: Yeah, it's a big state.
2: Well, it's not, no, it's a little state, really. You know, it's one of the smaller ones.
1: It's not as small as New Hampshire.
2: No, New Hampshire is longer than, I think, um, Massachusetts is long. New Hampshire is pretty big. I mean, it's bigger than Massachusetts in area, um, if you don't take in uh, Cape Cod. You know, the the elbow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well see I've always lived in pretty big states. <laughs> I've yeah. lived in
1: big states. I mean, Montana's like the fifth largest state in the Union and uh
2: Yeah and York
1: really Florida was really big and
2: Yeah. My my going from Massachusetts to California was definitely a culture shock.
1: Oh gosh, California's huge.
2: Yeah, I know. I I would have to take my lunch to get anywhere because it would take so long to get there, but you know. Yeah, I lived in Alaska and it was really yeah, big. Yeah, yeah. I mean it just well you had to take planes. <laughs> I took freeways. But
1: <laughs> Okay, so I'm gonna end up with Abigail now. Um she you know, the the war goes on and he's in, in Europe and, and he becomes president and then I just wanna go to how she how she passed
2: absolutely you want to read the letter from John to Abigail about the declaration
1: oh yes absolutely I didn't even know you had that yes
2: okay okay let me get it up here
1: um,
2: okay this is July 3rd from Philadelphia Had a declaration of independency been made seven months ago, it would have been attended with many great and glorious effects. We might before this hour have formed alliances with foreign states. We should have mastered Quebec and been in possession of Canada. You will perhaps wonder how such a declaration would have influenced our affairs in Canada, but if I could write with freedom, I could easily convince you that it would and explain to you the manner how. Many gentlemen in high stations and of great influence have been duped By the ministerial bubble of commissioners to treat and in real sincere expectation of this event which they so fondly wish they have been slow and languid in promoting measures for the reduction of that province other there are in the colonies who really wish that our enterprise in canada would be defeated but that the colonies might be brought into danger and distress between two fires and be thus induced to submit Others really wished to defeat the expedition to Canada, lest the conquest of it should elevate the minds of the people too much to hearken to those terms of reconciliation which they believed would be offered us. These jarring views, wishes, and designs occasioned an opposition to many salutary measures which were proposed for the support of that ex- expedition and caused obstructions, embarrassment, and study delays, which have finally lost us the province. All these causes, however, in conjunction, would not have disappointed us If it had not been for a misfortune, which could not be foreseen and perhaps could not have been prevented, I mean the prevalence of the smallpox among our troops. This fatal pestilence completed there our destruction. It is frown of providence upon us, which we ought to lay to heart. But on the other hand, the delay of this declaration to this time has many great advantages attending it. The hopes of reconciliation, which were fondly, fondly entertained by multitudes of honest and well-meaning, though weak and mistaken people, have been gradually and at last totally extinguished. Time has been given for the whole people, maturely to consider the great question of independence and to ripen their judgments, dissipate their fears, and allure their hopes by discussing it in newspapers and pamphlets, by debating it in assemblies, conventions, committees of safety and inspection, in town and country meetings, as well as in private conversations, so that the whole people in every colony of the 13 have now adopted it as their own act. This will cement the union and avoid those heats and perhaps convulsions which might have been occasioned by such a declaration six months ago. But the day has passed. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epocha in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of the ravishing light and glory I can see that the end is more than worth all the means and that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even although we should rue it, which I trust in God, we shall not. Oh, oh gosh, I just, I get choked up.
1: You know, what I find fascinating is how many of the terms we, used, we still use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, after losing his bid for reelection in 1800, which on my other show, the Uncooperative Radio Show, we have a clip about the attack ads in 1800. Deb, I'm I'm going to send you a bunch of stuff tonight.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> so
1: you'll be really happy. You'll be funny to, to listen to it because it's just like John Adams is the scum of the earth. You know what I mean? It's just like. Yes. And. So everybody knows that 1800 was a horrible, 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 horrific election, and uh, Alexander Hamilton was the one against John Adams. Thomas Jefferson completely stayed out of the fray. He wouldn't dignify himself with this. He did not approve anything. He did not write anything. He just like let him have at it. You know, we've talked about Jefferson and we highlighted his, him and his wife Martha. He was a very Quiet man. He was very intelligent. He hated politics. I mean, they drafted him how many damn times? He wasn't even in the country they drafted him. But that's what you want. You want people that don't want to be politicians. You want people that don't want to do this. But because they have such love for the country, they will do it anyway. That's what we want, ladies and gentlemen. These men didn't want to do this. You think John Adams wanted to be away from Abigail? No. you think uh, that why did you think George Washington called Martha every time he could to come to, to him? They didn't want to do this, but you know what was more important—the country and freedom—because they were doing this for their children and their grandchildren. Now these politicians and these thugs are destroying what's going to happen to our children and grandchildren. It really saddened me to no end. So anyway, after losing his bid for re-election in 1800. John Adams retired to life on the farm. Abigail Adams continued to keep herself busy, maintaining her home. The family remained plagued with illness. Both Mary Cranch and her husband died within days of each other. Nabby Adams had been diagnosed with cancer and underwent an operation. John Adams injured his leg in an accident and was unable to walk for several weeks. As always, Abigail Adams cared for them all. On October of 1818, Abigail Adams suffered a stroke. She died quietly on October 28, 1818, surrounded by her family. John Adams lived several more years, passing away on July 4, 1826. Abigail Adams has the distinction of being the first woman, and the only, oh no, the first, that's right, the first. The first woman in West mm-hmm. history to be the wife of one president, John Adams, and the mother of another, Don Quincy Adams. So that was John Adams and Abigail, signers of the Declaration of Independence from Massachusetts.
2: And there's a lot of there's there's many books um, on her. There's there's some a few good books uh, that tell of of her life. And, uh, um, so if you want to, uh, if you want to look more into it, you can, you can, uh, uh, find them online very easily. Um, and, you know, there's a couple that have come out recently, like in the past 10 years that are really good. So, and if you get a chance to go over to, to, uh, mathhistory.whatever it is, um, well, I go to the Massachusetts history uh, website and, and read the letters between the two of them. You'll get a, a very good um, eyewitness account of um, what her life was like without him and what his life was like being away from her and doing what he was doing. And she totally understood what he was doing, even though she was alone for most of her the marriage, Um, you know, I mean, he was away more than they were together, uh, until he, you know, the, um, well, when he became president. But, um, it really gives you an insight into the beginning of the revolution and, you know, the early, the early part of it, because their letters start in, in 1762. So you can, you can, uh. I mean, because they they discussed. I mean, she was not she was she was not one who believed that women had no place in politics. She had opinions. So, anyway, that is Abigail Adams, wife of John.
1: Okay, so now we're going to talk about Samuel Adams, and I don't know if we'll get through the whole thing with them. I know so he married two women. Uh, One died, and I'm going to the first wife that he had, and he was also a signer of the um, Declaration of Independence, and he was in Boston. And if we don't get all the way through, we'll just, it's going to be part two anyway. Mm. So now, we know that John and Samuel Adams were second cousins, right? Yes. So now, the first wife of Samuel Adams, Elizabeth Checkley, The first wife of Samuel Adams, father of the Revolution, was the daughter of Reverend Samuel Checkley, pastor of the New South Church in Boston. Notice both Abigail and Elizabeth came from pastor, you know, pastor's family. That's really interesting. Okay. The elder Checkley and the father of Samuel Adams were lifelong friends. So, again, we're talking about they're all swinging in the same circles. And her father and Samuel Adams' father were best friends, and he ends up marrying her. And as it is said it was the influence of the elder Adams that secured the appointment of his friend to the pastorate. Consequently, it brought satisfaction to both families when it was found that the young people had plighted their troth. I, I love those words, right? Plighted their troth. Mm-hmm. It means that they had betrothed themselves to each other. They were in love. They were married in October 1749. She was 24 years old at the time, and her daughter, as her daughter has written, was a rare example of virtue and piety blended with the retiring and modest demeanor and the charms of elegant womanhood. The families of Adams and Checkley had been connected by marriage in the previous century. Captain John Adams, having married Hannah, daughter of Anthony Checkley, First Attorney General of the Promise, Providence, province, under the new charter, which you had talked about, right? hmm Right. And an ancestor of Reverend Samuel Checkley. Elizabeth Checkley's mother was a Rolfi, daughter of Reverend Benjamin Rolfi, minister at Haverville Hill, Haverhill at the time of the Sack of Haverhill by the Indians in 1708. In this fighting, the minister was killed, together with about 100 other persons, and many more were carried away. According to Drake's History of Boston, a maid servant in the employ of Reverend Mr. Rolfe saved the two little daughters of the ministry by her bravery and presence of mind. She overheard the Indians breaking into the house and, springing from her bed, took the two little girls, Elizabeth and Mary aged respectively 9 and 11 years, and hurried them into the cellar where she secreted them under the large tubs. They were not found, though so the savages ransacked the whole house. It was one of these little girls, Elizabeth, who afterward became the wife of Reverend Samuel Checkley and mother of Elizabeth Checkley, who married Samuel Adams. Five children were born to Samuel and Elizabeth Adams, only two of whom came to maturity, Samuel Jr. and Hannah. Mrs. Adams died July 25th, 1757. After this date in the family Bible, there is, it is written in the hand of Samuel Adams. To her husband, she was a, sincere and was a sincere friend as she was a faithful wife. Her exact economy in all her relative capacity, her kindred on his side as well as her own admire. She ran her Christian race with remarkable steadiness and finished in triumph. She left two children. God grant that they may inherit her graces. So, that was his first wife, Elizabeth. Now, that's going to read about his second wife, who was, stayed with him till the very end of the Revolution and the whole thing. It will will be highlighting him as well because we need to talk about Samuel also.
2: Oh, Sam, he's my favorite. He's my favorite. Um, He and and Thomas Jefferson run neck to neck for different reasons. Uh, But anyway, Samuel Adams is is one of my favorites. Elizabeth Wells Adams was his second wife. And uh, let's see. This is All, uh, all these women um, That we're reading about Most of them uh, Will be from the uh, website Colonialhall.com And they have the uh, Biographies of uh, Many of the uh, Signers of the Declaration Signers of the uh, Articles of Confederation And the signers of the U.S. Constitution And these are the They also have the, the um, Category of the wives of the signers So if you want to If you want to uh, check it out, by all means, go to ColonialHall.com. And uh, it says, far removed from the brilliant social circle of which Dorothy Hancock was the bright particular star and inferior intellectually to Abigail Adams, Elizabeth Wells, second wife of Samuel Adams, was yet a woman of most excellent qualities and well worthy of being the helpmeet of that patriot and statesman during the most trying period of his life. Samuel Adams' characterization of Benjamin Franklin as being a great philosopher but a poor politician might be paraphrased as applied to himself as being a great politician but a very improvident improvident family man. His whole life was practically given up to public affairs, while private interests, business, and family matters were neglected in a way that would have driven a woman less loyal and even-tempered than Elizabeth to bitter complaint, if not open rebellion. (laughs) And that's a very polite way of putting it. Yes, um, there's a good book on Sam Adams. Um, I can't think of the author right now, but um, it's one of the, the best ones. And yes, <laughs> it's, you, know, five, you know, we give him five stars to Elizabeth for putting up with it. Yet always we find her cheerful and sympathetic, always a faithful and loving wife to Samuel Adams and a tender mother mother to his motherless children. His business might be going to ruin through neglect while he talked politics with his neighbors on the street corners. His leafy, leaky roof go unshingled while he made patriots of the workmen of the sail lofts and shipyards of Boston. But not one word of complaint or fault finding do we hear from his family. Politics came as natural to Samuel Adams as the air he breathes. Not the petty politics, the po- plots and plans for place or patronage, but the great politics that is the practical side of statesmanship. The politics that began by teaching a crude and simple-minded people their inherent rights as free-born men and women, and building up a spirit of opposition to any encroachments upon those rights, whether foreign or domestic. The politics that finally wrenched a handful of straggling colonies from a great and powerful monarchy and welded them together into a compact and harmonious republic. Such was the politics of Samuel Adams and the very thesis that won for him from Harvard College in 1743, his Master of Arts degree. Whether it be lawful to resist the Supreme Magistrate if the Commonwealth cannot be otherwise preserved, shows not only the bent of his mind, but also that however much other leaders of revolutionary sentiment may have looked forward to reconciliation with the mother country on a basis of justice to the colonies. Samuel Adams, almost from the first, saw nothing ahead but independence. He was speaking independence in the 1750s. He waited thirty years, you know, um, twenty-five to thirty years, to see it come to fruition. He was making noise back in the fifties, so it's just he's he's just an amazing man, and we don't talk often enough of him. Anyway. Samuel Adams was 42 years old when he married Elizabeth Wells, fifth daughter of his intimate friend Francis Wells, an English merchant who came to Boston with his family in 1723. She was 29 years old at the time of the marriage. He was not a successful man according to the standard of most of his thrifty neighbors, though looked upon as one of strict in- integrity and blameless morality. He could not make money, and what was more to his discredit in their eyes, he seemed something
1: real quick? Yeah. He didn't get married again to his second wife till he was how old? Uh forty two. So he was wait he was a widower for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> that, that, so this, this
2: this lady
1: was awesome. Yeah. I mean seriously cuz he would if he was waiting this long and cuz you know back then they could got they could have the company of any woman right I mean
2: oh he you know he he was um he was well known I mean they knew that you know he was not a businessman and he was poor as a church mouse cuz he was always in debt or you know he just didn't have any money and uh and you know he he tried a few things and and they never did come to fruition and he was always out you know doing he 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 was he was he, he burned with this passion for independence. Because,
1: right, but my point is that he it, it, she had to be a very extraordinary oh, person yeah, let yeah.
2: I mean yeah. see. Um, when was he born i i I don't know exactly how long it was between marriages because they don't say the year he was forty two i I can't remember the year he was born, but um I think he, he I don't know, but anyways, we can figure that out yeah yeah um let's see. He could not make money, and what was more to his decredit discredit in their eyes, he seemed to have no desire to accumulate property. His father had left him a fairy fairly profitable malting business, a comfortable house on Purchase Street, and 1,000 pounds in money. Half the money he had loaned to a friend who never repaid him. The malt business was neglected and mismanaged, so they did not pay expenses. But always and ever, Sam Adams, as he was generally known, was talking politics, writing for the newspapers, debating some measure before the town meeting, or framing up some act for the assembly, calculated to strengthen the rights of the people or to awaken opposition to British encroachment. Boston at that time was a city of about 18,000 inhabitants and noted already as a reading town. Education was general. Nearly every person read some one of the five newspapers that were published there, and they carried columns of announcements from booksellers. Of news and impersonal articles, such as go to make up the newspapers of our day, there was very little but letters from the people championing various lines of thought, letters that argued, letters that pleaded, letters of vehement, invective, and insinuating sophistry, letters signed by the writers and letters signed by, by nom de plume. That's what I was trying to think of. Filled the columns of the papers and exercised a vast influence on public opinion. Samuel Adams was an indefatigable, indif- indif- well, he he wrote a lot, writer for the newspapers. I just can't say these words tonight, or ever. Um, Samuel Adams, yeah, uh, let's see, he appeared under many pen names, but always in advocacy of some measure that he was preparing to have the town meeting endorse or the assembly put through. A Tory writer of the day is quoted as saying, the town meeting of Boston is the hotbed of sedition. It is there that all their dangerous insurrections are engendered. It is there that the flame of discord and rebellion is lighted up and decimated over the province. Yeah, you know, a lot of hubris back then. They they, they spoke <laughs> with great exuberance. And the year of 1764, says Hosmer, his biographer, Samuel Adams had reached the age of 42. Okay, so it was seven years between marriages. Thank you. Even now, his hair was becoming gray, and a peculiar tremulous of the head and hands made it seem as if he was already on the threshold of old age. His constitution, nevertheless, was remarkably sound. His frame of about medium stature was muscular and well-knit. His eyes were a clear steel gray, his nose prominent, the lower part of his face capable of great sternness, but in ordinary intercourse wearing a genial expression. Life had brought him much of hardship. In 1757, his wife had died. Misfortune had followed him in business. The mall's House had been an utter failure, which is why I laugh when they, you know, they have Sam Adams beer. <laughs> you know, it's a hell of a lot more prosperous than his ever was. Um, let's see, his patrimony had vanished little by little, so that beyond the mansion on Purchase Street with its pleasant harbor view, little else remained. His house was becoming rusty through want of means to keep it in repair. On the 6th of December of this year, he married for his second wife Elizabeth Wells, a woman of efficiency and cheerful fortitude who, through the 40 years of hard and hazardous life that remained to him, walked sturdily at his side. It required, indeed, no common virtue to do this, for while Samuel Adams superintended the birth of the child independence, he was quite careless how the table at home was spread, and as to the condition of his own children's clothes and shoes. More than once, the family would have become objects of charity if the hands of his wife had not been ready and skillful. In the present day, Samuel Adams would have been called a political boss. Boston was an absolute, was as absolutely ruled by its town meeting as any city of today is governed by its mayor and council. In town meeting, Sam Adams was absolute in his direction and control of the town meeting. It was he who outlined politi- policies, made up slates, and saw that they were put through Always he held some minor office, generally one without a salary attached and not entirely out of keeping with his services and the power he exercised. For Sam Adams, as a boss, had his limitations, which would have been laughed at by the political bosses of latter day, later days. He remained as poor as ever. No shadow of corruption ever fell across his path. No political job ever left the taint of graft on his hands. He was a collector of taxes for years. Times were hard, money woefully scarce, and the collections became sadly in arrears. Adams' enemies raised the cry of defalcation. Then it came out that Sam Adams had refused to sell out the last cow or pig or the last sack of potatoes or cornmeal or the scant furniture of a poor man to secure his taxes. He had told his superiors and authorities that the town did not need the taxes as badly as most of these poor people needed their little belongings and that he would rather lose his office than force such collections. It was, of course, a poor showing for an official, but it put Sam Adams and the plain people of Boston so closely together that they were ready ever after to elect him to any office he would accept. Writing of Adams in 1769, Hosmer says, For years now, Sam Adams had laid aside all pretense of private business and was devoted simply and solely to public affairs. The house on Purchase Street still afforded the family a home. His sole source of income was the small salary, 100 pounds, he received as clerk of the assembly. His wife, like himself, was contented with poverty. Uh, (laughs) Mm. Through good management, in spite of their narrow means, a comfortable home life was maintained in which the children grew up happy in every way well-trained and cared for. John Adams tells of a. "'drive taken by these two kinsmen on a beautiful June day, "'not far from this time, in the neighborhood of Boston. "'Then it from the first and never after, "'there was an affection intimacy between them. "'They often called one another brother, "'though the relationship was only that of second cousin. "'My brother, Samuel Adams, says he never looked forward in his life, "'never planned, laid a scheme, or formed a design "'of laying up anything for himself or others after him. "'The case of Samuel Adams is almost without a parallel.' as an instance of enthusiastic, unswerving devotion to public service throughout a long life. Um, It is not our purpose in these pages to give, even an outline, a history of the great work that Samuel Adams did for the cause of American independence, but in order to gain insight into the character of Elizabeth Adams and show what the wife had to contend with, the utter devotion of her husband to the public business and his singular unselfishness so far as that business was concerned must be dwelt upon it is easy enough at this time to see the great stakes for which sam adams was playing to understand his carefully laid plans and to sympathize with his disinterested patriotism but we must remember that elizabeth adams doing needlework and kitchen gardening to eke out the scant allowance she had to furnish a livelihood for herself and family was looking at the fabric from the wrong side what is to us a strong harmonious and beautiful pattern must have been to her a motley collection of ragged ends thrown together without rhyme or reason, something dull, distorted, and indescribably ugly. Yet we hear of no complaining, no chiding, because of this thriftless waste of time and talent working for other people without compensation and neglecting his own affairs and family. Always she and his children just seem to think that whatever he thought or whatever he did must be right. During the summer of 1774, Sam Adams was a busy man. He was making preparations to attend the Congress that was to be held in Philadelphia and was at the head of several committees devoted to the relief of Boston. Owing to the closing of the port, the city was in sadly straitened circumstances. Donations were coming from far and near and were distributed by one of the committees of which Adams was chairman. Another of his committees laid out public works, opening streets and wharves and furnishing work for many citizens. Cosmer, writing of Sam Adams at this time says. He still occupied the house in Purchase Street, the estate connected with which had, as time went forward, through the carelessness of its preoccupied owner become narrowed to a scanty track. Shortly before this time, he had been able, probably with the help of friends, to put his home in good order and managed to be hospitable. For apparently, life went forward in his home, if frugally, not parsimoniously. His admirable wife, made it possible for him, from his small income as clerk of the house, to maintain a decent housekeeping. His son, now 22 years old, a young man for whom much could be hoped, was studying medicine with Dr. Warren after a course at Harvard. His daughter, Hannah, was a promising girl of 17. With the young people and their intimates, the father was cordial and genial. He had an ear for music and a pleasant voice and singing, a practice which he much enjoyed. The house was strictly religious, grace was said at each meal, and the Bible is still preserved, from which some member read aloud each night. Old Surrey, a slave woman given to Mrs. Adams in 1765, and who was freed upon coming into her possession, lived in the family nearly 50 years, showing devoted attachment. when slavery, slavery was abolished in Massachusetts. Papers of manumission were made out for her in due form, but those she threw into the fire in anger, saying she had lived too long to be trifled with. The servant boy, whom Samuel Adams carefully and kindly reared, became afterwards a mechanic of character and worked efficiently in his former master's behalf when, at length in his old age, Adams was proposed for governor. Nor must Q be forgotten, the big, intelligent Newfoundland dog who appreciated perfectly what was his due as the dog of Sam Adams. He had a vast intimacy to the British uniform. He was cut and shot in several places by soldiers in retaliation for his own sharp attacks, For the patriotic Hugh anticipated the embattled farmers of Concord Bridge in inaugurating hostilities and bore to his grave honorable scars from his fierce encounters. Until his 53rd year, Samuel Adams had never left his native town except for places a few miles distant. The expenses of the journey and the sojourn in Philadelphia were arranged for by the legislative appropriation. But the critical society of a prosperous town and the picked men of the 13 colonies were to be encountered. A certain sumptuousness in living and apparel would be not only fitting but necessary in the deputies, that the great province which they represented might, might suffer no dishonor. Samuel Adams himself probably would have been quite Satisfied to appear, appear in the old red coat of 1770 in which he had been painted by Copley And which his wife careful darning doubt, doubtless still held together But his townmen, townsmen arranged it differently How this arrangement was brought about is told in a private letter written August 11, 1774 The ultimate wish and desire of the high government party is to get Sam Adams out of the way When they think they may accomplish every one of their plans but however some may despise him, he has certainly very many friends. For not long since, some persons, surnames unknown, sent and asked his permission to build him a new barn, the old one being decayed, which was executed in a few days. A second sent to ask leave to repair his house, which was thoroughly effected soon. A third sent to beg the favor of him to call at a tailor's shop and be measured for a suit of clothes and choose his cloth, which was furnished and sent home for his acceptance. A fourth presented him with a new wig a fifth with a new hat, a sixth with six pairs of the best silk hose, a seventh with six pairs of fine-thread ditto, an eighth with six pairs of shoes, and a ninth modestly inquired of him whether his finances were not rather low than otherwise. He replied it was true that this was the case, but he was very indifferent about these matters, so his poor abilities were of any service to the public, upon which the gentleman obliged him to accept a purse containing about 15 or 20 johannas. Okay, one, oh. you have to start. Oh, there. I do.
1: Okay. <laughs> I'm we only got five minutes, and I want to put in everything. So, okay, we'll jot down where we stopped on um, on this one, which is the next one. And what what we'll do is we'll recap, ladies and gentlemen, everything that we talked about for the next show, and then do the rest of the signers from Massachusetts. Like I said in the beginning of the of the show. This is really, it was one of the most famous uh, delegations, although all of them were very important because they actually, they they were going to be hung for treason no matter where they came from. But I want to reiterate that if you go to uncooperativeradio.com, you will find the Uncooperative Radio Show, which is a political and history show. You will find... The Women of the Revolution, my husband put a radio station together to get all of us all of us together. You will find the archive of the Women of the Re- Revolution, and you can download that. You can download Uncooperative Radio Show, and you will find Patriot's Pub, Patriot's Pub. US. And that was an endeavor by the gentleman that introduced Deb and I together, who has passed, uh, with my husband and another... Uh, scholar self-taught about the constitutional convention of 1787 day by day in the founder's name and as always I'm going to let Deb go out but please visit uncooperativeradio.com so you can get one-stop shop for all things history and political. Take us out, Deb.
2: Okay, well thank you all for stopping by and uh, hope you enjoyed the show and um, as Susan said, our lives are a bit uh, topsy turvy right now, and um there's there's uh family things going on too, so we do apologize for not being absolutely consistent but uh, we will show up we will show up um just keep checking back and we'll you'll see what you know <laughs> what the update is and again our uh, kids in uniform are Uh, being sent over, and they are still in places of uh, very um, dangerous and icky situations, very dangerous situations. So pray for them and their families that they come home safe. And uh, um, write your representatives. The Congress is taking up the, the, the VA accountability bill, and this needs to happen because... We need to be able to have accountability for all the the nonsense that has been going on in the VA. Um, do do read up about it. You, you can find it on the internet. All you have to do is put in Veterans Affairs, and you will see the crisis that is the Veteran Affairs. And we're really hoping Trump can get a handle on it, and our veterans can be treated and and get the benefits that they've earned. Um and if you can go to your local VA hospital and go visit some vets and see what's up with them and you'll hear some great stories. As as always, I'm a great fan of of visiting the VA. You can volunteer there too. They usually uh have volunteer programs and that way you can keep an eye on what's going on at your local VA. And uh and like I said, you know, pray for our guys and gals in uniform and dangerous places because it looks like things are heating up again and we're not really sure which way it's going to go and uh, so have a good week hopefully we'll be back next monday at 8 p.m eastern standard time and until then you know stay safe keep your powder dry good night loki